We can see now just at the White House on the South Lawn, Donald Trump leaving the White House for the last time as president, walking out. There are some members of his staff, not many there. On January 20th, past 8 a.m., Donald J. Trump, the 45th president of the United States, left the White House. It's 8.21 and we have just watched Donald Trump depart the White House and is heading to Air Force Base Andrews where he will board Air Force One for the last time as president. That's why Al Jazeera colleague Alan Fisher sending us voice memos very early in the morning. I'm standing on a balcony overlooking the White House and it's weird to think that for the first time in four years Donald Trump is not there, that he's gone. Al Jazeera had correspondents spread out across Washington, D.C. for an inauguration like no other. The coverage of the event was challenged by the strict security and a looming feeling of the unknown. Here's our correspondent, Huda Abdul Hamid. It's 9 a.m. and we are heading out to our live position. This city is empty and quiet. It's actually very difficult to reach our live position This morning, there are many more roadblocks. The inauguration of Joe Biden as president on Wednesday saw the highest deployment of security of any large event ever in the capital of the United States because of the attack of January 6th. That's when a mob of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol building while Congress was formally recognizing the results of the elections and in the process of declaring Biden the winner. While the swearing-in ceremony happened peacefully, that doesn't mean that those Trump supporters are pledging their allegiance to the 46th president. So how might that determine the landscape of politics in the U.S. going forward? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. We've been around the city. The perimeter close to traffic has been expanded overnight. It's really very strange and I think very telling about the divisions in the country. What Huda is describing was not a surprise to D.C. residents. In the days leading up to the inauguration, Washington ramped up security to prevent any attacks from white supremacist groups or Trump supporters. The district received dozens of police officers from around the country as backup, and 25,000 National Guards were deployed, while the Secret Service directed the whole operation. I'm uh, about a block away from the capital. This is Al Jazeera's Gabriel Elizondo. All you really hear are a helicopter buzzing ahead. Other than that, the streets are very quiet. It's 10.14 a.m. and we're getting alerts on our cell phone that the Supreme Court possibly is being evacuated for a possible bomb threat. That bomb threat was the only major alert during the inauguration, and it was a false alarm. This is Manuel Rapalo, correspondent for Al Jazeera English. I'm just outside of the secure perimeter, as close as you can get to the White House. It's approximately 10.40 a.m., less than two hours away from the presidential inauguration. And it's a jovial scene. There's music around me. There are street vendors selling merchandise with Biden-Harris on it. There's also, of course, a giant metal fence around the National Mall, a line of National Guards troops. 
The Capitol Hill area in D.C. was surrounded by roadblocks, but some people still found a way to get together to witness history in the making. My name is Jihan Abdullah, and I'm a senior producer with Al Jazeera Online. I'm standing now in Black Lives Matter Plaza, where only a few dozen people, residents of Washington, D.C., have gathered here this morning during the inauguration on 15th Street, where a checkpoint has been set up. And people who are going through it are asked to show their cell phones and open their jackets. There's a speaker blaring Joe Biden's speech at the moment. Um, and people are just standing there silently listening to it. It's a powerful moment. We can join forces, stop the shouting, and lower the temperature. For without unity, there is no peace, only bitterness and fury. Biden's words were perhaps that much more powerful given the riot on January 6th. But for those journalists who reside in Washington, D.C., memories from that violent event are still fresh. So we tapped our colleague Josh Rushing from Al Jazeera's fault lines. He was at the Capitol both of those days, and as a former officer of the United States Marine Corps, he has a point of view on the issue. So when I saw what was happening on January 6th, at that point I'd been on basically holiday leave for a couple weeks and I had a beard like Santa Claus. And as soon as I saw them breach the, the doors of the Capitol, I ran to the bathroom, started shaving my beard. By the time I got out of the shower, I had text messages saying, can you get there? By the time I got down there, things were starting to calm down. The building had been secured. Night was just starting to fall. And it was the strangest scene. I, I thought I wouldn't be able to get close to it. They have roads blocked off or whatever, but that was not the case. I was able to park very near the Capitol and just walk straight up to the Capitol with that with nothing blocked off. And on the east side by the uh, Supreme Court, it was very well lit. There were tons of dogs, like police dogs, lots of security. All the reporters were doing stand-ups. And I kind of walked along the perimeter there. But I wanted to see the west side, which is the side that they had breached, because I'd noticed some odd things. Like, this is my military background, but I noticed they had repelling ropes and the repelling ropes were tied off in restricted areas. And I was like, who brings repelling ropes to a march? And it clearly, to me, it was one of the early signs that this was planned um, in advance and that they had done some reconnaissance to figure out where to tie those ropes. So I started to kind of walk around the Capitol, and there was just really nothing stopping me from walking straight up to the Capitol on the other side. There were no spotlights. There were no cops. There was no military. I was like stepping over their flags on the ground. There were Confederate flags. There were placards. I walked all the way up to the structure where they were building the scaffolding for the inauguration. So my producer who I was with, Kavitha from Fault Lines, we walked towards Pennsylvania Avenue and there was two big buses. We walk around them and there is a gauntlet of National Guards with riot shields. And they're probably about 50 guys deep. And they're arresting people and bringing them down the gauntlet, checking their pockets, taking a photo and putting them on the bus to take away to jail. And no one asked why we're there. And I'm standing so close to National Guardsmen that they're like, hey, can you give me some elbow room? It's like weird. Wow. There's no media. No one's asking for a press pass. It was just bizarre. And then I went Sunday, this last Sunday. And it was a different situation. There were tens of thousands of National Guardsmen there, more military than has ever been in D.C. proper. For our audience who doesn't live in the United States, you have to understand, 
The United States government is quite intentional about not having a lot of military presence in D.C. The Pentagon's actually in Virginia across the river, and you just, it's not like Moscow where you see the tanks rolling down in Red Square. They, it doesn't happen in D.C., and that's, that is by choice. But at that point, we were still able to go through checkpoints and get down to Pennsylvania Avenue and, and walk up within half a mile of the Capitol and be able to see it and see the route that they take from the White House to the Capitol and kind of be there. And then what I saw on Wednesday... The day of the inauguration was way beyond that. They had to move the, the perimeter much farther out. You couldn't get to Pennsylvania Avenue at all. Streets were just blocked everywhere. And I walked around. I've been at a few of these inaugurations now. I remember for Trump's inauguration, walking down K Street and seeing a limousine, you know, the symbol of wealth, just in full flames with an upside down American flag next to it. That's what Trump's inauguration was like, this dystopian fill of violence everywhere, fires everywhere. It was incredible. Wednesday, it was so quiet. Everyone I saw almost, everyone I saw almost had either a camera or a gun. It was like a convention of the world's journalists and security types and no one else. At one point, we saw a bit of a crowd, a couple blocks off, and we were like, okay, something's going on over there, maybe protesters or something. So we go over, and it turns out it's like the only restaurant open. They're serving coffee and like sandwiches out of their window. You couldn't go inside because of COVID. And uh, there was a line of people waiting to order food. But because they were the only people you could come across, they had attracted just a swarm of journalists. They were surrounded by people trying to interview them, uh, far more media than, than people at that point. So this inauguration happened, but it's weird. It happened inside this bubble. So really it was inauguration that it could have been in a television studio somewhere. I mean, it was a made for TV inauguration with no real observers that weren't somehow really a part of the event. So you sent our team a voice memo and the tone of it Sounds a little anxious, almost. You're walking around on Wednesday trying to interview people during the inauguration. This is completely anxiety-inducing for a journalist because today is a monumentally important day. And yet here we are, blocks from it, and nothing is happening. What were you feeling? Yeah, it was as if... We all got invited to a party that was in the wrong place. It was an empty city. We saw nothing. And yet, I understand, an inauguration happened. So as a D.C. area resident, why do you think that is? Why was there no one there? Everyone who lives around here got the message, don't go. Like, they were blocking the bridges. They shut down all the metro stops. All the businesses were shut down and boarded up. You would not be able to find a place to use the bathroom. You will not be able to, you know, do anything. Do not go down there, much less the, the, the fact that there's like this enormous risk of some kind of attack. But an attacker couldn't gotten anywhere near uh, where they wanted to. It would just have been impossible. And I think those people who, who might have been interested in attacking, to me, it seems like anyone who was that committed, and this is pure speculation, but anyone who's that committed probably came out on January 6th. And, and, and they had their day. And now they're being chased all over the country, and I think they're trying to hide under a rock. So it, it was almost because they, they did that so early and so obvious, and by filming themselves and posting selfies, that they made it such that it would be nearly impossible for them to affect this actual day. 
Did you find any Trump supporters to talk to on Wednesday? I did not. I never found one. I heard NPR reported a handful, and then they corrected it and said it's actually three. But I was not able to locate these three people. So aside from those who might have been intent on causing damage and destruction and another insurrection, because you've told us your speculation on why they didn't show up, for other Trump supporters, what does it tell you that you couldn't find any? Do you think that they listened to that final message from their leader, now former President Donald Trump? Or do you think it's the security in Washington, D.C. that was so intense that they decided not to protest? And and do you think that means plans for another kind of mass action like that are now over? So I would put on my military hat. I was in the Marines for about 14 years before Al Jazeera and, and speculate about what some of their thinking might be. And some of it is they're following Trump's lead. Trump left Washington in the morning, so he wasn't here. They're not here. But I also think going forward, they're not going away. The forces that have created them and that animate them are not going away. But I do think that they're going to reconsider their targets. Like to hit D.C., it was a hard target, a very hard target. And I don't think they have that kind of capacity. But they do have the capacity to hit softer targets. And what we've seen is they've wanted to kidnap a sitting governor. They've wanted to kidnap Congress people. These plans didn't work out. But the idea of kidnapping a politician and putting them on trial somewhere and then executing some sentence that they're going to put on that politician, that idea is still out there. It's still with them. And while there's been a pushback, a security pushback since they did what they did, I think they also put a lot of wind in their cells and made them feel empowered that they could take this fight to the next level. And I think America needs to really consider how they're going to confront this. But the flip side of that coin is what happened after 9-11 is civil liberties of Americans for years took a hit and, and have never recovered to before that. If you think civil liberties took a hit dealing with foreign terrorism, what do you think is going to happen dealing with domestic terrorism? So I see this as a battle line to come in the Biden administration is how they deal with this threat of domestic terrorism while acknowledging uh, the protections of civil liberties. On the day of the inauguration, there is a video of reporters getting to ask some of their first questions to now President Joe Biden. Can you unite the country, Mr. President? And the questions that were asked were along the same lines, and they sounded like, Mr. President, can you unite the country? Things that, of course, require a much more elaborate answer than the time was given after the inauguration. But you work for the documentary show on Al Jazeera Fault Lines. And your last piece, just a couple months ago, was entitled Trump's Loss in a Divided America. Based on your reporting, do you think there is a way for quote-unquote healing? Is there a way to bridge that divide and President Biden do it? I'm not optimistic about that. When you look at the majority of the Republican Party believes that it was an illegitimate election, even though they have no facts to back that up, that's the, that's the hardest part, is how do you deal with people who 
you simply share no no facts with. In, in the time of that they've measured approval ratings for presidents, they've never had such division about the way a president has been seen. This is the most polarized America has ever been. Something like at the time that I did that piece that you mentioned, it was like 90% of Republicans thought Trump was doing a good job and 6% of Democrats or something. Wow. And I interviewed some political scientists, didn't even make it into the piece, about that idea. How polarized are we right now? And they told me, you know, we don't have numbers. We've never seen numbers like this. But the last time they would guess we were this polarized was 1860, the election of 1860, which, of course, is the election of Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War. I don't think we're heading to that kind of civil war because of basically they don't have that kind of those kind of military forces that that could do that. But we are heading, I believe, into a period of conflict that I admire President Biden's focus on unity in his speech. But it's going to take a lot more than that because they don't believe that he's legitimate president. They're not going to believe that overnight. And no matter how nicely he speaks to them, they're not going to buy that. Joe Biden has inherited not only a divided country, but also one in a recession generated by the COVID-19 pandemic. His administration has announced a rollout of executive orders, a whole bunch, the day of the inauguration and throughout this week. And they're looking to reverse some of Trump's policies. Now we know his party, the Democratic Party, has the majority of the Senate and Congress with the vote of the vice president, Kamala Harris, being the deciding factor in some of that. There is a big chance that they can change many things. What are people here in the U.S. and abroad expecting Biden to do to secure a successful presidency? So he'll be able to make a lot of changes via executive order. He has over 50 executive orders already laid out. They're going to come out piecemeal over the next few weeks when they're going to come out by theme, be it economy, be it racial justice, be it COVID. But he's not going to be able to do everything by executive order. And the truth is, you don't want him to be able to do everything by executive order. That just means every four years, like in the first weeks of administration, this pendulum just swings back and forth. And that's not the way the government's supposed to work. The, the, the thing is, Democrats will be able to get what they want through the House because they have the majority there. In the Senate, yes. They have it by one vote, by the tie-breaking vote of the vice president. But because the filibuster, they really need 60 senators to move forward with anything. So as long as the filibuster is still there, they still need McConnell, or they still need a handful of Republican senators willing to get aboard with their agenda, or otherwise, they won't be able to get much done there. Very briefly, because I know this could be a whole other show on the filibuster, how would you describe it to an international audience? So the filibuster, technically, it used to be someone could stand up in the Senate. As long as they didn't stop speaking, they could hold the floor. I intend to speak in support of defunding Obamacare until I am no longer able to stand. And so they could force a vote to delay and delay. I just got word that the House historian confirms you have now set the record for the longest continuous speech in the House since at least 1909. (laughs) Now it's more of a procedural move where if they want to, the Republicans can say, we're filibustering. And it basically stops the debate from moving forward, and it can't go to a vote. So it it is a rule. It's not a law. But it is something that you need 60 senators to pass something through the Senate. 
to be filibuster proof. And so right now with 50, they have to get 10 of those other senators on that other side of the aisle to agree with their agenda and come along. In previous times, that was not impossible. But in the most polarized time in modern American history, it's a lot to ask. There are reports that before leaving office, Donald Trump discussed with some of his aides the creation of a new political party, his own political party called the Patriot Party. It seems like the idea came from not finding enough support within his party for his unfounded claims of voter fraud. What can this mean for the political future of the United States? I think it's one of the least outlandish things he's ever said. I actually (laughs) think there's a time. So we've had a a real time of stability with the two-party system in the U.S., where it's just Democrats and Republicans, and Democrats represent the supposed left here and Republicans the right. But we've reached a point where that system isn't really holding anymore. And that's not unusual. There have been several generational switches with parties in the history of America. Before the 60s, Republicans were not considered conservatives. It was really with Nixon going after kind of a racist strategy in the South that they became more conservative and Democrats became more liberal. So it happens every so often. And if you look at the situation right now, it's not just the Republicans, it's both sides. On the Republican side, you have the Trumpers. And it's this extreme nationalism, but it is not a lot of the traditional Republican values. It's not small government. It's not less deficit. It's not family values. It's really nationalism first. And a lot of people would say white supremacist nationalism. And so then you have these Republicans that are left out of that. So you have the Democratic Party, which literally represents every single other political belief in America that isn't Donald Trump. And the the problem with that is that political parties are designed around a shared political agenda that a party can actually achieve. When you have the only thing that either makes you, if you're not going to vote for Trump, everyone else ends up in this other party. That party is too big for itself. It's a tent that can't hold up and it collapses in the middle. Where you have Republican never Trumpers have very little in common economic policies with Bernie Sanders or AOC. So there's the two parties aren't really representing the electorate at this moment. So the idea of Trump creating a patriot party where Trumpers can go leaves room, perhaps, for the Republican Party to remain, but to be a more center-to-center-right party. The left needs to consider something like that as well at some point, or may consider something like that as well. Because, like I said, when it comes to, say, economic policy, which is huge— The people who are there right now have very little in common with the progressive wing of the party, which has a lot of energy and wind in its cells right now. So I think both parties are about to go through a reckoning in the next several years to represent their base. And if there is no third party, where do you see Donald Trump going? Will he be embraced more fully by the Republican Party or will the Republican Party be remade in his image? That is an open question that I certainly don't have the answer to. I think... It's going to be very interesting to see how long this kind of digital boycott of Trump lasts and what the effects of that are. And in the meantime, who can pick up his flag and carry on? And I can tell you, I've been to a number of Trump rallies reporting on them. And it's quite interesting because there are always speakers before Trump. Trump's always the last one to speak. At every rally I've been to, I have seen people leaving while Trump's talking. 
You, you think they love him, and yes, they do. But the, by the time he's talking, they've been there for hours. They're tired. Their feet are hurting. And he can ramble. He can really go on. But where I've seen him most energized, the audience at these rallies, is for Don Jr. is like a younger, more energetic, more firebrand, more ardent Trump. And he speaks their language. He's kind of like one-liners. It's almost like watching a meme-laden speech from meme to meme. He just hits them and they go crazy. And then on the other side, you have Ivanka that has this kind of polish that might appeal to, to people that are put off a little bit by how aggressive Don Jr. is. But there's definitely, I think, a lot of people looking to the political future of the next generation of Trumps and uh, what they represent. Do you think that the collective national memory will be erased soon enough and a person like Donald Trump and those who supported this idea of a fraudulent election will be welcomed back into the fold soon enough? You know, are you skeptical? You're, you're a journalist, so there's a, a healthy dose of cynicism that goes along with that. I am. I think... I was reading about Hitler's first 100 days, and the National Socialist Party in Germany never gained more than 37% of the support. And if you look at Trump's numbers throughout his administration, it was always right around 37 38%. And I was talking to a professor the other day who was saying that about 40% of the U.S. were against the Constitution in the beginning when they were arguing for why the U.S. needed the Constitution. And he believes that 40% is kind of always there. And when you're in a system where 47, 48% can win a popular election with the Electoral College, it, it doesn't take that much for them to tip the scales, even though they're not a majority. But I do believe, like, America has always been a struggle for what equal justice for all, like what equal means and what, who's in the for all. And that's always changing. And that's a, it's a battle that will never stop. And that battle is America. That battle is the American experience. And I think you're always going to have this core group of people who fight back against that. I, I just do. And right now, they're detached from reality. And I don't know how you get them back to reality. Well, there's an observation. I was at a Trump boat parade and leading up to the election. Oh, yes, I remember this. There's good pictures from this. Flags all over the place. Some boats had 10 or 15 flags on them. They love flags. Mm -hmm. But they weren't American flags. There were some. There were also some Confederate flags. But they were mostly flags of Trump himself. There's something to that about what a flag represents. And, and I've never seen an American politician where there are flags to that person. There were flags of him like Rambo, flags of him without his shirt on, flags of him on a tank. It's almost like what you see of, of Putin on a horse without his shirt on. It's that kind of thing. And, and there's an idolatry around their vision of what Trump represents that I've never seen in my lifetime in America or my study of history with it. And it is a dangerous and powerful force that I don't know where that goes. And that's The Take. We want to thank our Al Jazeera colleagues for sending us multiple voice memos during the inauguration coverage. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez with Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilbe, Dina Kispe, Amy Walters, Nagin Oliai, and me, Malika Bilal. 
Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is the Takes executive producer. You can find more of Josh Rushing's reporting in the description notes of this episode. You should check out his piece, The End of a Presidency, Trump's Loss in a Divided America. And for even more, stay tuned. Josh and I are doing a show swap as I work on a documentary for Fault Lines, and he takes over the microphone here at the podcast. Look for his episodes on The Take very soon. We'll be back.